If you want others to replicate your model, and that's what we hope a lot of people want to do, it is kind of like you define that model really well and you systematize it and you figure out how to replicate it yourself. Well, that becomes like software. You know, you start running it on your own hardware, you develop it on your own hardware, but it really becomes something that needs to be run on other people's hardware. In other words, replicated by their organizations. This is Mission to Scale, a podcast that reveals the tools, mindsets, and strategies that organizations and funders need to maximize their impact, because the world's biggest problems need solutions at scale. I'm your host, Dan Berenovitz, founder and CEO of Spring Impact. One of the key pathways to achieving impact at scale is replication. Having worked with hundreds of organizations on replication strategies in the past decade, I know what seems like a simple replication plan can quickly become deceptively complex on implementation. So for this episode, we needed someone who truly understands not only why replication matters in getting organizations to scale, but also how to frame it to make it accessible. That someone is seasoned foundation leader Kevin Starr. Kevin is the CEO of Milago Foundation, a private foundation that was created to honor the life and work of Raina Arnold. Raina died due to a stroke in 1993 while on a hiking trip with Kevin. And in the aftermath of that, I get to know his family, and it turns out they've been in banking for generations. And that in fact, Reiner, who I never would have dreamed this would be the case, had left a quite a fortune after he died. And they decided they wanted to dedicate that money to carry on some version of his work. So the present-day Milago Foundation was sort of conceived right there. And so Milago now is very well-respected, and you are well-respected as one of the thought leaders in this space. Can you tell us a bit about the work that you're doing now and um, the evolution since you started working in this space? Well, anybody who is thinking about the well-being of children comes to the conclusion eventually that what they're really working on is poverty. Mm -hmm. And so we really transformed our mission into meeting the basic needs of the very poor. And over time, that began to be looking for scalable solutions to the basic needs of the very poor. And we started to merge over time with the whole social entrepreneur movement. And so what it's become is looking for people who have what we think is a scalable idea about meeting the needs of the very poor, be it in health, education, or livelihoods, or or even in environmental health. So finding them, funding them, teaching them, and having a relationship over time that is really less about just funding an organization than it is about partnering with that organization to drive that solution to scale. And yes, we're the partner with the money, but it's not just the traditional role of a funder funding a doer to do something, especially since the funding is entirely unrestricted. So it becomes a genuine partnership where you both have your eyes on the prize and what you're really about is taking a specific solution 
to scale, which for us means taking it all the way to achieve its full potential. You said it's a true partnership and you're bringing them money, but knowing a little bit about your work, I know that you bring more than that as well. Uh, maybe you could talk a bit about what does the partnership look like? What do you think is special in that partnership? And it, what else is it beyond the money that, that you provide and try to provide? Well, we provide a lot more that we hope is useful. And, and the way that it works is that we started a fellows program some years ago. We didn't really know what it was supposed to do, but it, what it morphed into was finding and working closely with social entrepreneurs. And so we have a two-year fellows program and we sort of search the world for the best fellows we can find with the best solutions we can find. And then they're working with us closely for two years. They get $100,000. And we work with them specifically on our own approach to design for impact and strategy for scale. And then also we work with them on principles of behavior change because impact comes from people doing things differently. And then we work with them on a lot of the standard stuff like fundraising and communications and talent and leadership. And so that's a really tight mentoring relationship over the first couple of years. And then we decide who is the best fit to go forward into the portfolio. I see. Okay. So it's pretty holistic. You listed off probably all the things, if you get them right, you're on your journey to scale. You've written about scale pretty extensively and that it means different things to different people and that it's important to decide your own definition. How would you define it? And if you could share a bit about what led you to that definition. We currently define it, and we hope this catches on a little bit more because I think shared definitions end up being, <laughs> being of course, the most effective definitions. But because we look at solutions and because of we look at, at the size of the problem, we're interested in high potential solutions. And to us, scale is this sort of distant dream of those solutions achieving their full potential in the world. And so it isn't about a number. It isn't about a region. It's about understanding what the potential is of that solution. And then more of the verb scaling becomes the really operative word, which is to say something is scaling when it starts to achieve real acceleration of impact and eventually the sort of exponential dynamics of impact that are going to be necessary if we're to achieve the full potential of that idea. So really scaling is when you really start to steepen up the curve of impact over time. And presumably in steepening that curve, there's a bunch of things you've got to get right, you know, from the finances to behavior change you mentioned. What are the things you've got to get right in order to get that curve heading in the right direction towards scale? The first thing you've got to do is you've got to turn that idea into a systematic replicable model. And that actually is the thing that you take to scale. And I'll add a systematic replicable high impact model. And a lot of the, the early stage companies, we organizations we work with, that's what they're working on. They're R&Ding that highly scalable model. And to even do that, you kind of have to get into the, the most important concept around scale for us, which is the doer and the payer. So you're developing that model and the chances of that model 
reaching its full potential with your efforts alone, with you being the only one replicating that model, is pretty much zero. And so you really have to think about at potential realizing scale, who's replicating this thing that we came up with? Is it businesses? Is it nonprofits, NGOs? Is it government? That's kind of your three choices. And the earlier you get that sorted out, the better your design is going to be to go to scale. And then you can start looking at critical scalability questions like, well, is this simple enough for my doer to do? So if I've designed a model and I want government to be the one replicating it at scale, well, is it the kind of thing they do? And is it simple enough that they actually could do it compared to other stuff that they do? You can really start analyzing scalability. And then, of course, the next question is just as important, ultimately, as the doer at scale is who's the payer at scale? And again, you've got a limited set of questions at, at big scale. It's, is it philanthropy? And, and we all know that philanthropy is much better at getting stuff started than really scaling it up. Or is it taxes? Well, essentially, is it government, either with their tax money or the money they get from big aid, or is it big aid funding it directly? So you've got a limited set of doers and payers, and you have to design a solution that's simple enough for your doers to do and cheap enough that your payers will pay. This concept of doer and payer, for me, you know, in the last 10 years of work has just been incredibly helpful. It's so simple and yet so powerful when you're presenting it to an organization just in the categorization. And then you know, there's not too many options when it comes to either who your doer or who your payer is, as you said. Maybe could you give us an example, because essentially what you're saying is these groups are coming up with a hypothesis about what may work, but then of course, when things hit the real world, stuff always changes and your you know best held ideas are proven to not be the case. Have you got an example of an organization that maybe found the right doer and payer eventually and, and maybe a little bit about the journey on the way and how they had to change and, and pivot? Yeah, I mean, I might just go with kind of my favorite current example, which the solution is best characterized as professionalized community health workers. And the protagonist in this case, you know, there's a bunch of people working on that, but Last Mile Health in Liberia is a really good and, and actually pretty high-profile example these days. And it is a particularly interesting one in the sense that we got to know the organization and its leader at the time, Raj Punjabi, when they were off in the middle of nowhere in Liberia, literally in a county in the rainforest that I didn't even know existed. And because the problems they were seeing was so compelling, they had a whole bunch of little programs to deal with them, you know, whether it was nutritional gardens or it was some microfinance or I don't know if they, I think they were even looking at education stuff. What was the problem that they were dealing with? Poverty. Okay. Just fundamentally poverty and all of its scarcities and issues. Mm -hmm. And they also were dealing with had some ideas around community health workers. And when I heard about that, I heard about how they were thinking about it. They were thinking about they should be paid and they should be better supported in the field and they should be supplied better. And it just felt like, oh, here's some fresh thinking about community health workers. 
And we looked at all the stuff they were doing, and just because we'd seen a ton of stuff, we sort of said to them, you know, doing all that different stuff, that isn't scalable, but that community health worker idea you have, that is awesome. We would like to work together with you on that. But the kicker is going to be that you kind of need to let go of all that other stuff because mm. you can't do it all. You can't take all of that to scale. And that's kind of what they decided to do. And then they made another critical uh, decision, which is to say, this thing goes nowhere unless government really takes it on. And if it really works, government should be the one fielding these professionalized community health workers. And so they started aiming at that really early. And so they had their own projects with their own sort of branded workers, and they worked out the whole model with that. And then kind of right in the middle of that, they're starting to get relationships with government, and then Ebola hits. And through the process of trying to be useful through Ebola, they make much deeper government relationships. And when things settle down, the government is much more eager to work with them toward this idea of national scale-up. And so the government puts this whole professionalized community health worker idea, I think they called it community health assistance, into the national health plan. And everything since then has been about helping the government figure out how to do this and how to scale it up over the whole country as a government service that's integral to the primary healthcare work of the Ministry of Health. What happens when you get to the point where you just can't quite get them to do it? You know, once you've already sort of picked the easy to pick fruit and now you're on to the more difficult ones. Have you seen that sort of some of the challenges there and how people have managed to, to get around that or convince government that a project is a good idea? Yeah. You know, a lot of the people working with government will tell you straight off, work with them at the beginning of what you do. Don't try to sell it to them later. And we see that again and again and again. But you can't work with every government everywhere that you might be a potential partner in taking this to scale and embedding it in what they do forever. So some of what you're doing is you want to create the party that they all want to go to. And you want to create a sense of FOMO in those who are not doing it. And the best way to do that is to create a highly visible movement that showcases what great stuff is happening in the countries that have done this and make them feel like they're completely blowing it if they don't get on board. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think we want to be eventually is we want to be the party that everybody wants to come to. Kevin, we've talked about scaling in terms of the relationship between doer and payer. It would be really interesting to hear from you how scale and replication differ and how they relate to one another. Yeah, such a good question. So how we think of it is you go through an R&D stage as an organization, and the point of that R&D stage is to create a systematic replicable model mm -hmm. that you can make a persuasive case for impact. At that point, you're ready to start replicating, which is to say you're ready to start growing your operations and rolling more of it out. And so you're the replicator there. And then once you've established the impact of a model, well, replicating that model becomes synonymous with impact 
And what you're looking for then is what really happens to the replication of that model at really big scale and who's supposed to be doing it. You've written in the past about bingos, big international NGOs being a scaling route, and then written that actually they may not be a scale pathway or a doer that is as effective. Have your views changed at all since you wrote that last article? And I guess I ask because we've worked with a few organizations that we've recommended this route and got a lot of emails when you wrote that SSIR article. So uh, very interested to hear your current thinking on it. Well, just to tell you the story of how that came out is that we've always taught that lots of NGOs is a good, a viable route to impact scale. So NGOs as your doers at scale. And then we noticed that, well, you know, we have a limited little world here, but in our limited little world, we're not seeing that happen very much. And then, so Sarah Myers on our team and I, we got really interested in this idea. We felt a certain amount of obligation to be saying something intelligent there. And so we just put together this really informal little survey with like 20 people. And you and I talked about it a lot at the time. And we just asked him basically one simple question is, can you tell us of a solution that you've seen that seemed to really scale up effectively through the NGO sector and, and especially through the bingos, the big international NGOs that can really do things at a substantial size. And we were pretty shocked to have that come up with basically a big zero. Yeah. And one after one very well-informed person said, you know, other than, you know, microfinance way back when, or a couple of old things, nothing contemporary was coming up. And so then we thought, okay, we, we looked at our little world, not much was happening. And then we did this informal survey of like, I don't know, 18 people who we thought were smart and they didn't come up with anything. We'll write this piece. And then people will tell us how stupid we are and that there's all kinds of things that we missed. And then that didn't happen. So until somebody does some really solid scholarly work, I'm kind of saying, I'm not sure we should be telling people to build the future of their solution and their organization and their life's work around the idea that their idea is going to go big via the work of big international non-governmental organizations or bingos. So uh, when it comes to replication specifically, you've written about thinking of your model as software and the organizations that will replicate it as the hardware. Could you talk a bit more about that and why that framing you think is, is helpful and important? Yeah. If you want others to replicate your model, and that's what we hope a lot of people want to do, it is kind of like you define that model really well and you systematize it and you figure out how to replicate it yourself. Well, that becomes like software. You know, you start running it on your own hardware, you develop it on your own hardware, but it really becomes something that needs to be run on other people's hardware. In other words, replicated by their organizations. And I just don't think we've thought that through very much. We don't have standardized ways of going about that throughout the nonprofit world. And, you know, there's not that many organizations like Spring Impact really trying to make that happen. And so just at a simple level, we tried to look over, 
you know, our experience. And, and what we find is that if you want to help somebody actually run your software on their hardware, well, you need great materials to make that accessible to them. You need a great training process or some other process to somehow help them learn. And you need to embed the systems, be they implementing systems or performance management systems, logistical systems, whatever made the thing work in the first place. So you've got to have the materials, the process, and the systems. And then you kind of got to be able to go through the should do, could do, would do to find out who your customers really should be. And then you've got to create the commitment on the part of those customers be they government or bingos or whomever else, and get the commitment to do it right. And then you've got to do the customer support. In other words, you've got to be there for them over time. And so people say, well, give us a good example. And it's kind of like, I don't know. I haven't seen one. I haven't seen anybody really put all that together. I think some of the professionalized community health worker organizations are really starting to innovate on this. And I'm excited to see what they come up with. But I think that the whole software on hardware thing is something that needs to be a major focus of our whole industry. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I love the idea of this package being around materials, process, and systems, and then needing to sell that. What we've found just from a very sort of pragmatic standpoint is that there's very little interest in foundations funding that sort of work and organizations just tend to not prioritize it that highly and so we've gone out there and there's been a few organizations over the years who have committed and and said you know this is what we want to do but it's not a straightforward thing to get an organization to do when they're busy and working on multiple things so maybe it comes down to focus well i I have something there's one thing to say about that is but organizations do need to morph over time so when you're in r&d you're just a lab you're trying to come up with, metaphorically at least, a product. And then in replication, you become a factory. You're just churning replications of your model out. But then in scale, you become a recruiter and a teacher. Yeah. And that's a different organization. So you've got an organization that really needs to morph over time in terms of its focus and abilities. Interesting. I mean, I think in terms of what you said before, I know you give unrestricted funding. I don't know whether you've seen this, but there's a bit of Stockholm syndrome in the social sector where even though funding is unrestricted and theoretically people could use it for all the things you talked about and building their internal processes and the quote unquote boring stuff, they typically assume that funders won't want that, even if the funding is unrestricted. Do you think there's an element of that or do you think there's a reason why organizations aren't willing to invest in this software, hardware idea if they should be doing it more or are there are other reasons why it's not happening? Well, I certainly think that unrestricted funding still remains a tiny sliver of what it ought to be. Yeah. So that's part of it. But I also think that when we enter into this whole relationship of scaling a solution together, then we're in a chance to really brainstorm about what that really means. And what are the activities that are critical at any given point in time? And what kind of resources do you need to pull those activities off? Not just in money, but in terms of of systems development, personnel, and everything else. So if you're on that journey to scale together and you give them unrestricted funding, that unrestricted funding goes toward 
an effort that is really designed to make as much progress on that journey as possible. So it all kind of comes together in that way. So you have very clearly laid out all the things that need to happen if you're to achieve impact at scale. At the same time, we know most organizations don't ever achieve scale. Could you highlight maybe an example of an organization that has failed to scale, you know, for one of the common reasons that you think scale doesn't happen? Yeah, I'm more interested in solutions that failed to scale than organizations that did. Okay. Because organization scaling doesn't really make any sense to me in the absence of that context. But there was something that we got really excited about, which was chlorine dispensers. So Innovations for Poverty Action came up with this idea for having these dispensers at water points where um, those who are collecting water could just put a couple squirts of chlorine in it for free and take it home. And chlorine mm-hmm. has a residual effect that protects you against these pathogens you know, for as long as the water is sitting around. And it was so cheap and so effective that we just thought this needs to go big. And in fact, um, Evidence Action was an organization that was kind of devised, formed, founded to take things big. Yeah. Well, it turned out the thing never had a business model for exactly who's supposed to go around and install them and make, keep them filled with chlorine, even though the whole thing is super cheap. So at that time, I think I didn't know enough about focusing in immediately on the doer and the payer at scale. Yeah. And so I naively blundered into this without knowing the two things that were most critical for this to go to scale. And in fact, we never really found them. So the thing kind of even using philanthropy mostly, it took off and then it flattened out because we never got that rocket to scale figured out. And so the thing went to a few million people, which is pretty great, but it's not going to solve the problem for the hundreds of millions that have this problem. That's a very helpful example, I think, as to how things appear to scale initially and get exciting and then level off. You shared a whole bunch of incredibly helpful detail about what a leader should do. But of course, when you're in the position of leadership or if you're on a team, it's quite challenging to sort out you know, what to do next. What is your top priority? What would your message be to the leader of a social venture looking to scale? Uh, make sure you have a scalable model. Make sure it has real impact in the lives of those you've set out to serve and figure out the doer and the pair. Do that and then systematize how it's rolled out, replicate it enough yourself to understand what it really costs and how to really implement it and what systems it takes and what kind of people it takes, and then start working on what we call the big shift, which is start working on achieving your doer at scale, start working on what it takes to go from, say, philanthropy to your payer at scale, rejigger your model so it's that much more scalable work on the critical policy issues that come up see how you can use tech to make it that much more efficient and replicable and then finally look around and see what kind of collective action you can either become part of or start and there's the whole thing right there that's a scale strategy 
principles that Kevin has developed make it so much easier to get a replication strategy right from the very start. I wish I had these insights available to me at the start of my career. Over the years at Spring Impact, we've gathered all the tools that we found helpful for replication into the Social Replication Toolkit. It's available to download on the Spring Impact website for free and we'll add it to the show notes. If you're serious about replication as your pathway to impact, I'd highly recommend it. That's it from us. Please don't forget to subscribe or follow our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And while you're there, I'd appreciate it if you could rate and give us a review. If you love Mission to Scale, I hope you recommend our show to a friend or colleague. Mission to Scale is produced by Spring Impact and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at Spring Impact, visit springimpact.org and follow us at Spring Impact on Twitter. Thanks so much for joining us and I'll catch you all in the next episode.